Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. And now, a message from our sponsor. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that's over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the area of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards the BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.ca. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast. I'm Renee Franker, the editor of Blue Line magazine. Thanks for hitting the play button and listening in. For this episode, we're taking you northwards up to Sudbury, Ontario, and we're going to be chatting about some heavy stuff. So I'm letting you know now. There's a trigger warning for this episode regarding suicide. But please also know it's largely a tale of resilience, a tale of taking trauma, holding it in your hands and massaging it, working with it, close at hand with peers, family and professional, of course, until it reshapes into something else. Here to do that is Constable James Jefferson. He's a 12-year police service veteran and the wellness coordinator officer with the Greater Sudbury Police Service, also known as GSPS. He specializes in mental health, peer-to-peer -peer support, member outreach, and physical fitness and nutrition. After working assignments in uniform patrol and the drug enforcement unit, being involved in a fatal shooting and working undercover, James endured the fallout of PTSD. He says he then faced a decision, live forever defined by an acronym or transform. He used his experience to gain a perspective, and he tells us he molded trauma into purpose by educating and inspiring fellow first responders to persevere and overcome the challenges that come with wearing the badge. James graduated from Laurentian University with a BA in Law and Justice and Psychology. He is a certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, as well as a public speaker and a mental health advocate. James, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. It's, it's great to see a new face during these uh, rather isolating times. Thank you very much. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you today. So you've been walking quite the journey since your career in law enforcement began. Uh, you know, there's a lot we want to revisit and unpack from your experiences, but take us back 12 years ago to start. You know, why is policing something uh, you had set your heart on? It was my life's ambition. It was something that I was truly pulled to rather than pushed. I just, I always saw myself in this line of work, in this career path, and I thought it was the perfect fit for how I thought, how I carried myself, and what I brought to the table in terms of just who I was as a person. Wonderful, okay, and then, and then something happened, a darker chapter happened. Can you tell us more about what led to that PTSD diagnosis? You know, um, was it something that you could see unfolding? Were you aware of, of your mental health status at the time? Well, coming into the profession, I was completely naive and oblivious to mental health. I didn't know what PTSD was. My first two years on the job, I flourished. And then just a little past the two-year anniversary mark, um, 
I was involved in a fatal shooting. It was a homicide, which ended up turning into a suicide by police scenario. And it was a tough moment for my partner and I. It, it was a moment where we were faced with a decision that no human should ever have to make. And it's to take a life or to gamble with my own and that of my partner's. Um, so it was a fallout that I wasn't prepared for. I believed I had everything with this profession locked down in terms of emotionality, psychology, physicality. But experiencing an, a, a traumatic event such as that, I was not prepared for the psychological hardship that followed that and the moral guilt in you know, the days following and, and living with this reality of taking a human life from this earth. It was, it was a pain I was not prepared to deal with. I can't even imagine, right? That's, I just can't even imagine. I have to, to say that because, wow. You know, you, you talk about hitting rock bottom. You, can you help us understand a little bit more about what that rock bottom was for you in the, um, the aftermath? Well, it was, it was a few rock bottoms in the process, really. It was, you know, being promoted shortly after my shooting uh, into my drug unit where, you know, I did plain clothes and undercover work. Um, and that, that began my downward descent in terms of really amplifying PTSD and my depression and anxiety. You know, um, the drug unit is a hard go because you're dealing with a lot of human tragedy. You're dealing with a lot of human pain. And it allowed me the opportunity to really put myself out there and put myself in a lot of danger because as the PTSD began to grow, my thoughts of suicide began to grow. It began to, it was an everyday thought after a while because I believed I, I was not capable of getting through this. I believed it was just going to steadily get worse and worse for me. And I thought suicide was the only option. And I did attempt suicide in my tenure in the drug unit. Um, and it was during shift, unbeknownst to my uh, work colleagues. But I know what a loaded handgun feels like pressed against my temple. Um, fortunately for myself, I had you know, an awakening moment uh, sitting there with that loaded gun pressed to my head. And it was just simply thinking about my youngest daughter and thinking about the fallout of this act, what it would have on her, what kind of trauma I would be putting into her life. And I wouldn't wish PTSD or trauma on my worst enemy because losing your ability to control your own mind and your own thoughts, there's nothing more tragic and humbling than that, in my opinion. And I could not put that into my offspring. That was just not an option anymore. And realizing that I took the, I took the road that suicide couldn't be an option. So I had to simply endure so my daughter and my family didn't have to. But I didn't go about it in a good way because I still continued on with the excessive drinking, the dangerous, you know, drug lifestyle, putting myself in harm's way in any kind of, you know, way, shape or form I could. Um, and I continued on this path for years. It just continually got more self-destructive. My marriage 
began to, you know, began to crumble. Um, and it brought me to this crossroad where I had a physical injury on the job. I had ruptured my Achilles tendon and it put me off work for the first time. And I always use work and my athletic ability as a rubber crutch. It distracted me. And finally having to be off work, it was the first time that I had that silence and that stillness in my life. And to anyone with unresolved trauma, you know, that silence can be deafening. And that stillness can create mania in your mind. And being off work in that, in that predicament, my mind woke up. And I use the analogy, the mind is a lot like water. It can flow or it can crash. And my mind crashed with the amount of experience that I had tried to suppress was now at the forefront of my conscious mind. And it was two years being off work. I was off a total of three and a half years. But the first two years was the dark abyss. It was my rock bottom because I was inebriated that entire time from medical cannabis from morning until night. Uh, my marriage was never rockier. Uh, my wife and I really couldn't go a day without arguing and, and finding something. And obviously the underlying cause was my trauma. And I had lost everyone at that time. I pushed friends and family as far away from me as I could. Uh, because moral guilt is very self-destructive. You don't feel like you deserve goodness around you and good relationships. Uh, that social anxiety, you cancel on everyone. So people just kind of give up on you in terms of inviting you out because he's just going to cancel last minute. And living like this for two years and finally it all coming to a culmination where I believe my marriage was over. It was the talk of divorce. It was that process of, Am I moving out? And the reality of not seeing my daughter every night and every morning, it was, it was too much to handle. And that to me was my rock bottom because I couldn't get any lower. You know, my family was my life. My daughter is my absolute world. And I realized that, you know, I had to change the game. I had to change the game plan. I had to recover from this because living like this couldn't be an option. I could not sustain this lifestyle. You know, there was a matter of time before I did something that was dangerous, something that was hurtful, something that would put me in harm's way. So it was making that conscious choice to be better than the disorder, to not be defined by the disorder, but defy this disorder. And it all began there. Wow, I, I got to ask, how old's your daughter now? She's nine. Oh, amazing, wonderful. So, so then you you really started that that climb, uh, you know, kind of facing, like you said, that the silence and facing everything that had uh, surfaced that you now had to come to terms with. How? Tell us about how you really made that climb up from rock bottom. You you've made this decision now. Um, you've got this awareness. What was the next step? Well, the next step, you know, obviously, and like you said, I, I made a decision. And that's, that's the most important element of this equation. Because if you make that decision and, and hold true to your convictions, 
you know, there's truly a redemptive quality in that decision that can carry you through this, this journey because it is the hardest journey I've ever embarked upon. And first step for me was finding the right mental health professional. I, I had been with a handful of different professionals since my shooting, you know, in about a six year span from psychologist to psychiatrist to psychotherapist. And I never felt that I was getting better in this process. I felt that, you know, yes, I would feel good leaving the session, but the very next day I was the exact same person. And I really had to do some soul searching in terms of what made, what made me tick and what I needed out of therapy and how I was approaching therapy. And I realized that I was controlling my own therapy. I was going in and I was dictating what I wanted to talk about. I was dictating what I wanted to avoid out of fear and being uncomfortable. And that really hindered my process. It hindered my progress. And so when I realized that I needed a doctor that had the skill set to push me, that I needed to speak about the things I didn't want to speak about. I needed to delve within my trauma because I realized that the only way out was in. I had to jump in these metaphorical flames and really understand and process and resolve this, this PTSD and this trauma within me. And I found this doctor, uh, Dr. Vivian Lee out of Toronto, brilliant doctor, love her to death. She's done so much for me. Um, and we worked for a year. It was every week. It was heavy immersion therapy. And she pushed me to the brink of my sanity. Um, but it is what I needed to turn around and start growing as a result of it. Um, my next step from that was, you know, the spiritual realm. I've never been, you know, um, a very religious person. I do have an unwavering belief in God. Uh, but religion has never been a part of my life. But I needed a spiritual guidance. Um, and I sought out my, my service chaplain, who's now an archbishop. Um, and I met with this chaplain at a church. And this was kind of set up through Dr. Lee. Um, cause she obviously thought it would, I would benefit as due to my moral guilt and meeting with this chaplain was such a surreal experience because I was with her in her church. Um, we talked, we cried, she blessed me. Um, she read the Bible to me and she prayed for me and she prayed for my strength and she prayed for my forgiveness, but not my forgiveness from God, my ability to forgive myself. And that was a moment that I really took with me because I really embraced the spirituality of that moment and the connection with myself and the chaplain. And it was just another tool to bring with me to uplift me in this process. And from there, it was just an everyday conscious effort in, am I doing something that's helping me or hindering me? Because progress equals growth and happiness. And I knew that I had to do things every single day because, you know, you can see the best doctor in the world, but that's an hour a week. There's, you know, 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. So you have a lot of time to be accountable, accountable for. And it, it, it began from, you know, the content I took in. I made sure to listen to as much positive content as I could through, you know, motivational, inspirational videos, podcasts, motivational speakers. I was a big believer in, you know, Tony Robbins and 
Les Brown and Eric Thomas, the people who inspired me and gave me messaging that allowed me to replace my negative self-talk. And I took their words and their words ultimately became my words. And I did this daily. It was a daily regiment of habits and rituals. It was understanding that the people I surround myself with, I become. And I've always surrounded myself with officers who I love and respect, but I had to be honest in the fact that at this point in time, I was on an uphill climb and police officers can be negative at times. It is a, it can be a negative environment and I didn't need that negativity in my life. So I had to distance myself. I had to seek out people that were on that same journey as me, people that were inspiring, people that I could have talks about, you know, what's next, not what's bothering me and what's, you know, what's the wrong in my life. And from that, it was just learning who I was and how I was evolving in this process and mastering my self-talk. You know, self-talk is crucial. You know, the, the mind has between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. And if, and if you're talking down to yourself, and there's an expression I love that says, be careful what you say because you are listening. And you call yourself a failure enough times, whether you believe it or not, that's going to embed itself into your mind. And when you need it the most, that is the thought that's going to come out. And understanding this and having these speakers in my corner and these, this, this doctor and this chaplain and having, you know, the understanding of this process, I was able to formulate my self-talk into positivity and now talk to myself with empathy and compassion and not push myself down as I've done for so long. Now I was lifting myself up. And in, in taking all this into account and, you know, the totality of all the things that, that I was using, I believe it really allowed me to just be mindful in this moment. And I live by the notion of just win the moment. You know, anxiety is the future, depression is the past. All we have is right here, right now. And if you truly believe that there's nothing more important than what you're doing right now, you will be fully invested in this moment and you will feel a strength and a peace that, that you can't even fathom. That's phenomenal. There's so many helpful tidbits that anybody can take away from what you just said. I mean, my, my brain is just firing off on so many different uh, areas right now. We, we also love Dr. Vivian Lee. She was part of our virtual symposium. So fantastic uh, that you guys were able to connect and work together for so long. That's great to hear. You, you talked about some of those amazing um, positive components to that journey upward. Uh, so many great stuff there. Can we talk a little bit more about what hindered your process? Because you mentioned every day you had to think whether you were doing something to help or hinder that process. Um, so what kind of obstacles did you come up against in terms of uh, the hindering? The hindering is, is a lot of just internal thought that you're constantly trying to fight against. A big thing is the ego. It's how we feel we're being perceived by our peers in this process of being off work. And, you know, in my experience in this position and my experience in, you know, what I've been through, I understand that we put so much weight into what others think. And that, that is a big component in, in hindering this process because our focus is on the external. And if your focus is constantly on the external being peers, being family and, and not, really internalized 
you're taking energy away from your healing process. We only have a finite amount of energy in a day. And if I'm taking that energy and I'm using it in terms of worrying about what people think, worrying about my reputation, my ego, then I'm taking that energy away from my own healing and my own inner peace. And that was a really big eye opener. And if, if you can live this life and not worry about what other people think of you, that's a superpower. Because that is, that is just being content with who you are in your own skin. And you don't owe anybody anything other than, you know, your immediate family. And I would say the other thing that hindered it is just the pressure that we put on ourselves, especially in this profession of policing. We are so used to being in control. We are so used to having timelines. We want it to be done by this time. I want to be back at work or I want to just do something productive. And it's to allow yourself to just be present in the moment and not put that pressure to put the fast forward button on and, and get to that, that place where we don't even know where we're going to. It's about understanding of being in the moment to see things as they are, not for what you want them to be. And, and that was the biggest thing with, with healing is just to slow things down and to breathe. And, and you know, that, that kind of goes into some of the things that, that's helped this process and, you know, little tidbits of slowing things down. You know, motion creates emotion. It was, I see police officers and I'm guilty of myself, is that fast police walk is, you know, even in the grocery store and you're off time, you're walking like you're on a mission and something as simple as just slowing down that walk. All of a sudden your mind slows down, your breathing slows down, your heart slows down, and then you can take in the world around you. And it was, it was just a very trial and error process, but that's the biggest takeaway in terms of, you know, finding what works and what doesn't is you can't stop trying to try. You have to try everything and keep trying more. Eventually, something's going to work. You take that with you, and the things that don't, you leave that behind, and you keep moving forward as long as it's forward. Even if it's one terrifying but determined step, you just keep going. I, I love that because even if you think it's not making an impact, doing something as small as, like you just said, changing your pace one afternoon while, while doing uh, errand running, uh, that's trying, that's forwards uh something as small as that can make a difference so it's very very helpful i i was thinking as you were talking about even just when this global pandemic hit um you know how a lot of us were forced to really confront ourselves because all of a sudden now we couldn't fill our lives with all of these distractions and you know the comings and goings and that was very hard on on a large number of, of us uh, to sit at home. Uh, you know, everybody, of course, is busy with kids and whatnot, but you really had to face those silences around you and uh, kind of do some internal working. I think I think everybody struggled with that in the beginning. So I was definitely relating as you were chatting there. All right. Well, James, three and a half years later, you know, you found yourself back at the police service in Sudbury. You know, how did this feel? How was it different uh, to you? Well, it was, it was an experience that I never thought that I would actually have. In, in the midst of my trauma, I, I firmly believed I would have never set foot in the police station again. I never thought I would call myself a police officer again. Um, and it was, you know, life kind of tapping me on the shoulder and giving me one of those epiphany moments of what this position could be. 
Um, we didn't have this prior to me starting it, but it was me being off and, and embarking on this process of healing where I made the decision that I have to work with first responders. I have to work in mental health. I have to use this. I can't experience, you know, eight, nine years of trauma and PTSD and have such a lived experience and understanding of it and not use it to help somebody else. So that, that was the ultimate decision of, I understand what I want to do. How do I go about doing this? How do I, how do I make this a reality? And it's been three and a half years, as you said, that I even set foot in the police station. And at one point in time, it was, you know, one of the biggest psychological restrictions for me, even seeing the police station, you know, set me running for the hills. But purpose trumps fear every single day. And I had this, this inner purpose in me because of what experience and, and, and what I wanted to do with it, that I walked right in the station. I went right to the chief's office on the fifth floor. Not a very comfortable environment for, you know, police officers to be on the administrative floor. Um, but that was, that was the process. And I met with the chief. He had no idea what the meeting was, you know, here I, he jokes about it because here I am being off three and a half years. He thought I was coming in to berate him on, you know, lack of support or, or, or what he did not know. And I sat with this man and I was as honest with him as I am with you today. I explained, you know, what we were doing that was working, what we were doing that wasn't and what we needed, where we lacked. And I simply said, we need these things. And I need to be the face behind it. We need to create this position and it's got to be me. And for the chief to sit there and have one of his subordinates come in and simply, you know, tell him we need to create this job and I need to do it. And for him to be as receptive as he was, he saw, he saw the look in my eyes and he felt my passion with this. And he was a true leader in that experience because he's taking a risk on me, what I've experienced. And he's allowing me to, to impart this onto other officers and other personnel. And he allowed me to create this position, you know, with his support and support from, you know, other administrators. And it, it has gone better than I could have ever imagined. This, this last year and a half since I started it, the gratitude and, and the, the outreach from the members, it shows me that I was right. It shows me that I wasn't the only one lacking because I, you know, had that experience and now I can ensure that others won't walk that same path as I have. They will have a better path and they will have more of a supportive path to walk on. Incredible. Yes. And, and just for the record, for everyone listening, uh, that's Chief Paul Pedersen up in uh, Sudbury uh, that uh, James met with. James, you know, can you share a memorable anecdote? You know, of course, not not naming names from this role, but uh, I'm just curious if there was a moment that you go back to over that last uh, year and a bit now that you've been doing this, this role as the wellness coordinator, the very first one uh, at Greater Sudbury Police Service. Is there that moment that really illustrates how valuable this embedded role in the service is that you go back to uh, from that last year and a half? Well, there, there's been so many in the last year and a half, um, you know, from officers, you know, telling me that I've saved their life to hearing the words of finally from me doing public speaking and telling my story to the service, you know, 
having other police officers saying, you know, finally someone's talking about this and, and giving other people the strength. I've heard, I don't know how many times, you know, I've, I went to see a doctor because of your words, because of your strength. Um, there's one instance that, that really comes to mind with an individual I was working with and, you know, full embodied experience of PTSD, uh, very similar to myself. And I laid out the process for him. I explained on how I believe, you know, trauma and PTSD can be a gift if it's used in the right way, because it forces you to obviously seek that inner peace and seek that happiness, but it forces you to be within the moment. And you understand that being off work, you lose touch with the vast majority of people that you work with. And that's just part of the culture. That's, you know, nothing personal on the individual. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. But you, you see your family in a different way. You see your wife and your kids in a different light because you see how important they are to you. And I told this individual that eventually you will understand that going through this trauma and if you make that choice to try to push through it and get better, you will be a better father and a better husband than you could have ever imagined because you will see the loyalty from your family. You will see the love and you'll be able to just be present within the moment of if you're playing with your children or you're spending time with your wife, that is all you're focused on. And for this member to, you know, to tell me that his marriage has never been better. His, his fatherhood abilities have never been better and he's never relished more joy in being in the moment with his family than he is right now and, and in this process of self-discovery and healing. You know, that was the biggest takeaway and I gave him a piece of me and he was able to use that and, and make his life that much better. It, it, it meant the world to me. That's big. I, I keep going back to that quote. Um, I think it's actually from Elizabeth Gilbert, the, that author of Eat, Pray, Love, but the ruin is a gift and it's, it's a, you know, it's a difficult thing to hear, of course, in the moment, but that, that ruin is a gift, ruin is a gift. Um, and it's, uh, you've shared some experiences that, that illustrate that. And it's that self-talk, that positive talk uh, that can hopefully help turn something that is so painful um, into something that we can use. So thank you for sharing that. Well, it's, it's and, the, and the thing to remember with a lot of people is it's a long process where you will be doing these things day after day after day and you will feel the same and you're waiting for that aha moment that that moment where you finally see the light and i use the example with people of love if people have ever been in love you know when did you fall in love with your wife for example and you can't give me a specific day a specific time you didn't fall in love with her when you first met her you know there was obviously some good qualities but you invested day after day after day. Eventually you had that aha moment where you looked at this person and you said, I love them. And that's got to be the same mindset in this process. You're not going to feel better. You're going to feel actually worse going through it because it's going to feel unnatural. It's going to feel, you know, friction in, in because you want, you, I'm doing the right things. I should feel better, but, I still wake up with the same weight every day. But day after day after day, if you sustain this commitment to yourself, eventually 
you don't give your mind or your body any other option but to evolve. And that's how we evolve, through struggle. And the same as we fall in love, you keep doing the right thing for long enough, eventually that is going to happen in your life. But you can't give up. You have to invest every single day. Yeah, you know, rebirthing is, is a messy process. That's, that's what I've told myself through uh, some of those adversities. Uh, James, I'm curious, you know, COVID-19, uh, we touched on, I, I mentioned it a little bit myself earlier on, but how has the pandemic impacted your job as the wellness coordinator? I mean, uh, do you need more officers working with you in this role, helping with demand right now because of uh, just these increased tensions and increased uh, pressures, if, if you will, from what's happening on that level? COVID is, has definitely you know, been a struggle for some. Uh, you know, I worked from home for two, three months, which was definitely a struggle for me because, you know, I crave that human to human connection. You know, it's one thing to talk to someone on the phone or FaceTime, but when you can actually sit across from someone and look at someone in the eyes, it's a very different level of connection. But I found that, you know, with COVID in, in, in my job that, you know, there were some glaring things that, that, that really began to come up with you know, the, the struggles of this disease that was kind of, you know, raging through our world. Uh, a big thing was relationship problems. Um, you know, a lot of members, you know, struggle with, you know, the relationships with their spouse because, like you said, all of a sudden we're home, we don't have work to kind of, you know, distract us, and now we have nothing but time. And for people that aren't used to that sort of thing, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, so that was one, you know, hurdle that, you know, I had to give support to our members. The other one was the gym. Losing the gyms for police officers and personnel is huge because we rely on this so heavily for our own mental health. You know, the body's an extension of the subconscious mind. So if the body feels good, the mind can feel good. The mind can follow suit from that body's lead. And so many officers rely on this so heavily that when we lost this, it was hard for a lot of people. It created a lot of stress. It, it, it took away that outlet that people had. So that, those were the two main struggles that came out of this. But with that being said, you know, it was still nonstop from the point I started this position to current that the struggles have always been you know, very, very um, prevalent. You know, our, our profession, our mental health within our profession, you know, I believe is, is at an all-time low. We have officers and personnel that are struggling. It's, you know, it's COVID. It's, you know, the, the racial turmoil with, with police that's, you know, so prevalent right now. And, and the anti-police, you know, kind of movement that's going on. You know, this is affecting our members day after day after day. You, you can't turn on the television without seeing something directed at police. So you pile on the profession, the things you see here and experience, and then, you know, everything that's going around the world, you know, our, pe our people are struggling. Our people are in need of support. And, you know, I would love to get as much support as I could with this position because, you know, I'm, I'm known to be very busy, but it's, it's all, you know, within stride and, you know, helping members one person at a time. Beautiful. Yeah, and, and you're right. And peer support uh, at, 
every different police agency. It's evolving, right? And it looks different uh, at every uh, agency. You know, with that being said, have you connected with fellow wellness coordinators or peer support coordinators uh, at different uh, law enforcement agencies across maybe Canada or Ontario? Is there a group of you working together? I'm just curious. Uh, well, I've, I've reached out to, uh, so your magazine had put on an article uh, this last August, September issue uh, on a wellness coordinator from BC, which I've reached out and I, I have plans to speak with him in the very near future. And on the peer support side of things, um, there's a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Sean McCowell. He's a retired peer staff sergeant, uh, works with Dr. Lee. So uh, I've been in you know close contact with him since the onset of this position. He kind of, you know, got the ball rolling in terms of the logistics on how to get this off the ground. And then he actually had come up and he gave our peer support training, uh, which was amazing. It's, uh, we, we really, you know, reformulated our peer support team, built it back up 30 members and, you know, having Sean come in and, and do our training with us uh, is invaluable. And, and just having his experience from being in the wellness student in Peel, and, you know, having all those years of, of peer support experience that he has under his belt, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. So I, I really feel like, you know, I'm doing the right things and surrounding myself with the best people in this field to learn from them and, and hope to, you know, take the same road as them in, in helping our officers. Fantastic. Yes, uh, Sean was one of my early contacts when I came on board at Blue Line. So I see for our listeners, you have one of his beautiful paintings behind you in your office. I, I love yes, it. I yeah, he, he sent us the the tiger, uh, his painting of a, a tiger. I have it in my office, which of course I'm not in right now, but uh, very, very grateful for his connection as well, you bet. Well, what about advice, you know, for other agencies um, that are looking to recreate your role, that wellness coordinator role specifically? What kind of, uh, you know, top pieces of advice would you provide them that you know my a lot of services have have reached out to us and they've asked you know how do we how do we do this how do we you know copy what you're doing because it seems like it's it's really making some headway and my service has been very adamant that it's it's not the position it's the person within the position and i think that's the biggest takeaway from it is you have to have that lived experience one but by the same token, you have to be past it. You have to be in a place of peace. You know, it's one thing to have the lived experience, but to still be angry with, you know, the system, with WSIB, with, you know, your service or your administration. You can't have all that. You have to be in that place of calmness where you can give subjective advice or support. And it's not coming from, you know, a selfish place. It's coming from a selfless place. And that's, that's, I think, the biggest thing with this position is people understand if you've been through it, then they can confide in you. And a big eye-opener for me is when people make that decision that, you know, I don't want to open up or I have no plans on, on talking, you know, to James. I said, give me five minutes. And I start talking and then you see that light bulb go off. And then it's, oh, I get it. He understands. He's been through it. He's talking my language. Because everyone who's been through trauma thinks that, that their case is very individualistic. They're the only ones who's experienced it. But you talk to someone for five minutes and you tell your side of things, all of a sudden you've, you've you know, formed that bond. 
and you open up, you know, the, the, the floodgates of information and sharing. And so lived experience is, is completely, completely invaluable with this position. Yeah, and, and I just, uh, I keep thinking about how that occupational specific component, uh, you know, it's something we've been discussing in our columns in Blue Line, but you, you do really need someone um, that understands that first responder experience, the first responder mindset um, to, to really start that healing. You, you definitely need that component. Awesome. Well, kind of a different question here now, but uh, what role do you see technology? You know, there, there's a number of apps out there, for example. So what role do you see technology playing as wellness uh, for our members and families continues to evolve? You, you know, is there an app that you're looking to connect with those you're working with, uh, you know, uh, on their own mental health journeys? Because it's, of course, hard to keep track of everyone at times. So I'm curious uh, about that tech component for you. Well, it's, it's definitely the, the way of the world and, you know, the, the direction in which we're going. Um, we've taken a handful of meetings with, with app developers in terms of, you know, what they bring to the table and what their app specifically, you know, does with policing and peer support. Currently, we're, we're still in that process of finding the right fit. My big thing is as long as information is accessible while at work or at home, then then you've won that battle and that's that's our biggest streamlined approach to this is it has to be accessible 24 7. the information has to be there in terms of what doctors are available what resources are available because a lot of people are just simply not in the know and it's until it's too late to okay what doctors you know should i talk to it's you know this allows people to be proactive and when they're at home, when they're going through something, then they can, you know, look up in the website or look up in the app. Who's on my peer support team? What doctors are available? You know, we have boots on the ground. We have this resource, that resource. So it's whatever avenue you can find that is a one-stop shop of resources. Because end of the day, you're the only one who's going to save yourself. You know, my wife couldn't save me. My friends, family couldn't save me the only person that can save yourself is you. So if you have all that information at your disposal and, you know, inform a blueprint, if you will, of these are some good tools to use, these are some self-care techniques, something will work. As long as you try something, just make sure you try. And so that's the direction in which we're going. It's slow going currently, but I, I, we're going to get there. I know we are. Oh, I don't doubt it. No, we'll, we'll be staying tuned to see what you guys get up to for sure. All right. Well, there's lots of, you know, belief out there that, that PTSD, once you've been diagnosed, okay, this is a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong hurdle. You, you hear things uh, like, this is as good as it will get, so work with it. Um, and I know that you have a great response to comments like that. Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, and it's something I hear quite a bit, you know, that whole concept of just cope. Uh, even, even, you know, the, the whole the word of coping techniques, you know, I, I prefer the word resilience techniques because coping is just accepting what is in terms of who you are. It's, it's not forcing yourself to be something better. And I hear a lot of officers, you know, they use the ride it outline. I'm just going to ride it out for the next five years till I retire, ride it out till holidays. You're not riding anything. You'll be the same person you are now, or, you know, when you think, you know, you're going to sail off into the twilight and be better. It's you got to work on yourself and the whole concept of this being a life sentence. That's what I believed. 
I thought this was who I was for the rest of my life. And having that notion is very dangerous, you know, but I'm a firm believer now that, you know, PTSD and trauma is a stepping stone to collateral beauty. And I love, love the term collateral beauty because I believe in it because I've experienced it. I experience it on a daily basis. And, you know, the whole concept of collateral beauty is if you know what the true pure darkness is, if you've lived, you know, in that abyss for some time and you believe this was all life is, if you can do the right things to push yourself out of that and keep stepping towards that light, eventually you will hit it and it will be the brightest light you could ever imagine. And you will just have a joy of life that is just, you feel like you're walking on air and it, and it almost feels guilty in a way to be this happy and this content in life in terms of what you've gone through. But you truly feel like you've escaped something that really a lot of people haven't. And it just allows you to slow down and see life in just all its beautiful forms, you know, to the smallest thing of taking in the breeze to looking in, you know, my wife's eyes or my daughter's face and just, appreciating what I have in that moment with them. Amazing. Something you, you might not have been able to do to, to this degree with without, uh, you know, that journey. I, I'm thankful for what I've experienced. It's, it's changed me. I am not the same person who I was before policing to trauma to now. It's made me stronger, but it's woken me up to life. You know, I really feel like Everything preceding trauma, you know, I was kind of asleep. I was going through the motions of life as most of us do. You know, we punch in, we punch out, we go home, we, we, we do our regular activities, we go to bed and we do it again. And having this experience and, and, and being able to just be within the moment, you're awake to life. And you almost feel like an outcast because you're just looking at life very differently from the rest of the world. And it's, it's a true blessing. But you can't get to that point without a fight for yourself and without experience or knowing, you know, what that darkness is. You bet. Yeah. The, the work that's required for that collateral beauty. That's, and that's something you've, you've shared with us here. So thank you for, for that uh, honesty and, and just being vulnerable to, to sharing that uh, journey. So. James, we've come to the end of our podcast. Uh, this might be getting a little old for me, but I, I ask it every month because I know our listeners love it. Um, so uh, it's time for that standard uh, two questions that we throw at you for the, the fun finale. So bear with me here. <laughs> <laughs> what is something your colleagues might not know about you? That is a very difficult question to answer. Um... You know, I, I'm not too sure, to be honest with you, because I'm pretty much an open book with what I've, you know, experienced in my lifetime. Um, maybe I'd like to tell you that, that, you know, how much I enjoy to sing, especially in the shower. But other than that, I would say I'm an open book. Yep. Uh, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And, you know, what? I will tell you everything I've experienced because, you know, I believe it's just it's making the world a better place and, and you know, my small bubble a better place. So, yeah, I, I nothing specific. So we just have to have someone get a clip of you singing in the shower now, an audio clip. Share that around. There we go. That's the next step. The last thing. 
All right. What about one thing you couldn't live without? And Nutella and coffee are already taken, just so you know. So you're gonna have to get creative. Well, I I, I do love my coffee, so that that would have been one of my answers. <laughs> um, it would be family. Uh, you know, I've I've really come to the realization on how important family is, and valuing every second of it because you don't know what tomorrow brings, and. You know, having my wife by my side and sticking with me throughout this entire journey, and and you know now experiencing the fruits of of peace, which is something she never thought she would have, and you know being in such a good place that it allowed my wife and I to have our second daughter, and having you know two girls to look after. Family is everything in life, and you know being a father, there's there's no better job and and no better reward in life than you know a child calling you daddy and you know just having my wife look at me and tell me she loves me it's it's i couldn't live without my family they're everything to me fantastic well well my father will also tell you as the father of two girls that that's the best situation you can have just have two daughters so <laughs> you're in for a treat it only gets better <laughs> Well, James, thank you for, for sharing your, your personal story today, for, you know, being that open book. Uh, it's no easy task, and it needs to be commended more. So I thank you from the, the bottom of my heart for, for sharing that journey because it is only going to help our listeners and, and Blue Line uh, readers. So thank you for being here. I truly appreciate that. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Make sure to check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us under Annex Business Media Podcasts for Work. Also, check out our podcast tab on blueline.ca. Have a guest you'd like to nominate to appear on our podcast, or maybe you want to be considered yourself. If you have a story to share that you think will help our law enforcement listeners in their work, and in their everyday lives, send us a message. You can find my email address and phone numbers at blueline.ca slash contact. Thank you to everyone listening, especially those out on the front lines protecting our communities. Here's to open minds and more compassionate, uninhibited conversations. Stay well, everyone. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that's over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the area of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards the BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.ca. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. Thank you.